Welcome to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about will the 20s be roaring? What was predicted to be the roaring 20s due to a huge number of events schedules has been stifled by the pandemic. Organisers of some of the UK's premier live events discuss how the sector can bounce back from the pandemic and cope with major challenges ranging from building back customer confidence and ending personnel shortages to meeting sustainability goals. Okay, hello and thank you for coming to this panel. We're going to explore whether the um, 20s are going to be roaring. Um, Essentially the aim of this panel really is to, to look at the positive impacts of the pandemic. Obviously there's been plenty of negative impacts of the pandemic and really just how the next decade is likely to shape up in terms of um, in terms of how we're going to overcome issues with the um, supply chain and move forward and rebuild the industry coming out of the pandemic. Um, we're lucky to have some of the organisers of um, some of the UK's biggest events. Um, at the far end, we've got Michelle Dyke, who's uh, Operations Director at Wimbledon. Um, on her right, we have Steve Tilley, Ed Sheeran's UK promoter and uh, a director at Kilimanjaro Live, which uh, uh, promote major concerts of varying different sizes, including uh, and also um, a series of festivals around the country. Um, we've also got uh, Hugh Brasher, um, director at London Marathon Events. Um, and closer to me here, we've got Rick Stainton uh, at Creative uh, Events Agency Smile. Uh, he's also the founder of One Industry, One Voice. Um, I just wanted to kick off really by, um, by sort of gauging what the panel's experience is so far of, uh, or sense really, of what consumer sentiment is coming out of the pandemic. Um, we've seen, you know, there's been no shows reported of about 20% at some concerts, at other events selling out really well. Um, I just wanted to kind of gauge across sport, across music and across, you know, the, uh, the other kind of events we're dealing with here, what um, your feeling is. So, Michelle, obviously Wimbledon is, you know, people are desperate to get tickets for Wimbledon. It's, it's it, you know, you have huge queues outside. It's, it's one of the most established and popular events there is. Um, but what's your feeling, what sense are you getting so far about, you know, consumer sentiment, consumer willingness after pandemic to, to get out there and get to events? Um, well, good morning all. Happy International Women's Day uh, to one and all. Uh, just in terms of where we are as uh, Wimbledon, we're, we're used to having a cohort of people that come to work for us, also come to enjoy a shared experience, be that in the queue, be that in the ballot. Um, but things have been turned on the head with the pandemic, whereby the formula is not quite the same as what it always used to be. Um, we're seeing that, certainly from a recruitment point of view, it's a bit slower. Uh, we, ha- we rely quite heavily on returners, so people who have experienced the championships before. We think they'll come back, but they're asking a lot more information. They want to know uh, their hours of working, the welfare spaces that are available, and to our health and safety planning, which probably in the past was something that was not quite so front of mind. But I think generally we feel that people do want shared experiences. People want to work together. People want to have fun together. Um, and I think moments like Wimbledon and many of these other events, I don't think we're any different. Uh, the, we're different in scale, we're different in budgets, we're different in what our events are about, but we're all in the same space of getting people back and providing enough confidence and demonstrating that we've got safe environments for people to come back. So um, we're confident and we have to be confident because we're all part of this whole recovery and, and resilience in the industry. Thank you. Okay. And Steve, obviously, Ed Sheeran is forgive me if I'm not exactly right on this, but as far as I understand it, he's pretty much the highest earning touring artist in the world at the moment. 
that might change in a year's time, I don't know. But clearly he's doing you know, a huge UK tour this year. Great to see a band, you know, an artist come back in and sell out um, or play numerous shows at you know, some of the UK's biggest stadiums. But you've also got a perspective across other show sizes, don't you, at Kilimanjaro, and you do festivals and smaller sort of tours and everything else. So, I mean, are you seeing a difference in appetite for shows depending on their scale, you know, from the theatre shows to the kind of big stadium shows, or what, what sense are you getting? Um, <clears throat> hello, everyone. Um, so, it's, it's a really complex situation in that we've got two years of rescheduled shows piling up into the period going forward. And then we've got all of the new things and new content that's been put on sale. So the industry is competing with itself. And so on, from an Ed Sheeran perspective, his timing of coming from when he came back is impeccable. Um, so sales are extremely, they're as good as we expected them to be. Um, so at the very top, if you're hot or you're buzzy, so if you're Sam Fender, if you're Phoebe Bridges, if you're Ed Sheeran, you're going to sell tickets. It's the middle. It's the sort of the mass in the middle that sort of... The, Get bands who gig every 18 months, um, two or three year arena tour cycles. They've, a lot of them have either just come back and put things on sale and, and the audience is like, well, I've already got 10 tickets for 10 things. So I've seen you before, so I'm going to leave it a year. And then at the very bottom, which is an area that I'm also obsessed with, which is new music and new talent, the space at the minute in the media for them is not there. Uh, we're either post-pandemic or we've got all the doom and gloom about the situation in Europe. So for a new artist trying to break through, it's extremely difficult. And again, that audience hasn't seen all of the new artists they were into in the last two years because they couldn't gig. So there's just a, it's, it's a bit of a mess, really. Um, we will get through it, but it's very, very congested. Okay, thank you. And, you know, Hugh, London Marathon again, it, it's... it's uh... It's a kind of household name event, if you like. It's embedded in, in our society, really, and, and um, it's a dearly loved event. I mean, you've, um, you know, your London Marathon events isn't just a London Marathon, so, you, you know, you have experience beyond that, 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 that event, clearly. What's your feeling? What's, what, how, what sort of engagement and response are you getting back from people, um, you know, consumers out there? Yeah, good morning, everyone. I think, as the panellists have said, there, if you have a marquee event, and the London Marathon absolutely is a marquee event, then people, that is their number one thing that they want to do. But we do have 14 different events, and those, uh, some will be a mile distance, some will be 5K, 10K. And I think that where people are is their calendars is incredibly busy, as Steve has said, with lots of tickets to lots of things. So they're really going to choose which event they want to go to, and it will be the prime events that sell out. I think that if your event is in the middle, if your event is not so high on someone's bucket list, it will suffer. Okay, and um, I mean, Rick, you, you, you know, your company do a myriad of, sort of events really, but you, you know, a lot of more creative events around brands and around you know, sporting events, opening uh, ceremonies or, or um, what, what, how's your business been sort of, how is it shaping up I suppose post pandemic. I mean, what, what sort of, is the money flying coming back in? Is there a lot of confidence in your clients? Yeah, mo morning everybody. Um, I think what we're experiencing from sort of the brand activation at the consumer events, whether it's something like Ryder Cup or opening ceremony or Wimbledon or other sporting events, um, is brands are recognising the consumer's attitudes to communities has, has really 
accelerated and developed, obviously because the way that we've reacted as communities to the pandemic, and that's become more emboldened. And, and the purpose behind going to an event now, whether it's through a, a wider showcase of diversity, equity, or inclusion, whether it's a wider showcase of sustainability best practice, whether there's some sort of sense of community giving back to a show, uh, a brand is really interested in, in, in being part of something like that, rather than just the historical, let's just get in front of the audience and show our, our brand, our products, or activate to the consumers that are there. They're very sensitive to the saturated market that people have talked about beforehand. And the point of differentiation is credibility of doing something with a purpose beyond just a commercial rationale. So we're really responding, and fortunately, Smile has, has a great pedigree in this, and, and therefore we're getting a nice amount of uplift in brands that really want to do it in a credible way with a legacy. And legacy that is demonstrated either through digital or, or live means pre, during, and post the show. So that's a really, I think, a really healthy, um, if there is a healthy legacy out of the pandemic, is the accentuation of community feel and a purpose to activations and consumers going to events beyond just what was traditionally the core reason. Uh, so it's a wider experience. Okay, and, and on the behavioural sort of theme, really, um, Hugh, in terms of workforce confidence, you know, you've got in some, some events have been rolled back for two years, London Marathon hasn't been, but some events have been rolled back for two years. You know, we've had some portion of the workforce has left the industry for other sectors like film and TV. I'm just, just some people maybe are feeling a little bit rusty. I don't know, they just haven't been getting their hands dirty at events, you know, getting set them up in the way they would have done when business was ticking over pre-pandemic. Is there any concern at all about sort of um, workforce kind of confidence or as, you know, coming back into this? Yeah, look, I think that people actually have moved away from the industry in quite a lot of, it, in quite a lot of cases. So uh, if they were working in an industry that pretty well for 12 to 18 months couldn't put live events on, then they had to find other employment. I think in the case of volunteers, generally volunteers, um, certainly in our events, tend to be of an older demographic. If that demographic happens to be particularly still worried about the effects of COVID, and I think what we have is a more polarised society where we've got more people on the extremes who have more extreme opinions, either open up very quickly or you're opening up too quickly. And the sort of the middle part of the, where most of us have existed has got slightly smaller. So I think that there are an awful lot of challenges that we're going to face in this year in getting the right staff, in getting the right volunteers, in getting the right expertise in terms of the security industry, in terms of um, the number of events that they're on, uh, in terms of looking, as, you know, as Michelle has talked about, in terms of what's your welfare policy, how are you looking after them, and then top that all on, and people are talking about potential inflation of 10% now um, coming later this year. So they were saying it could be um, 7%, it would be, could be 8% now with what's going on in Ukraine and the terrible uh, scenes that we see there. I think we are in a challenging year, um, but it's still a year that I'm hugely positive about compared to where we've been as an industry. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, I mean, in terms of, you know, when it comes to lots of festivals that have rolled over for two years, clearly, you know, they were sold, tickets were sold in 2019 prices, inflation's gone up hugely, and they're still setting up the event with the revenue from 2019, you know, very different cost prices. So, um, with, with the Ed Sheeran tour, I mean, I know that you kind of held the prices from 2018, which is brilliant for fans, but is that causing any kind of difficulties when it comes to you know, running these tours? <laughs> 
inevitably it is, uh, as Hugh says, the inflation uh, pressure on wages and costs has gone up from within the ticket price. So the margin for us is now smaller than we thought it would be. Um, but it was a conscious decision to keep the prices where they were in 2018 because we felt they were fair. And, and Ed Sheeran's always been about a fair price to the fans and not being seen to sort of be the most expensive ticket. Um, I think we're in a fortunate position in that we can sell so many of them. So we've got huge volume. Um, but definitely, there is, there is definitely a squeeze on the margin. But I think Ed Sheeran's a, it's not exactly a, an ideal scenario because it will still be really successful for everyone involved. I think the better example is our festival in Scotland, Belladrum, which was sold at 2019 ticket prices. And we're now trying to put it on at 2022 costs. And the, we did a forecast about a month ago on what we think the profit from the event will be. And, you know, it's disastrous to be quite frank. Um, it will go ahead, of course, um, but we are, we're not going to be making very much money out of it this year, which on, on, after two years of what we've been through is terrible. But, but taking, a, taking a long view of it, it's more important that the event goes ahead, everyone has a brilliant time, everyone feels safe and enjoys it, and we'll build back in the future. Will there be a situation where, because obviously prices are going to have to go up for next year, but will there be a, a situation, do you think, that prices will not only go up to reflect the rise in, in material costs and everything else, um, but it will also have to kind of go up to an extent where it's kind of making up for the, the year that we've maybe just gone through. So 2022 running an event with hardly any profit or any none at all. I mean, in the case of Belladrum, it's an event that sells out without announcing any artists. It's like a mini Glastonbury for Northern Scotland and the Highlands. So I think... If anything, we've been guilty of not pricing it um, in line with other festivals around the UK. So actually, we're fortunate and I think that we can probably raise our weekend price to the same as similar events all over the UK and just go, well, that's what you would pay for End of the Road or that's what you pay for Greenland. And hopefully our audience love our event enough to accept that that's fair enough. Yeah. I wanted to go off, um, off into a slightly different subject for a minute, but um, Wimbledon and the London Marathon were both were held last year as events research. Um, project um, events, you know, they were they were kind of they had the government kind of protection which enabled them to, to go ahead. Um, what were Michelle? What were, were there any really positive learning aspects of that? Was it? I mean, obviously, it was pretty difficult conditions to stage something like Wimbledon under. Um, but were there any kind of positives that came out of that experience? Well, I think there has to be, um, and certainly we were at that tipping point of when we were allegedly coming out of step four out of lockdown and um, we obviously the event research program enabled us to actually stage the event um, there were a lot of things that we learned in the build-up to that there was a lot of scenario planning like everyone else did but i think for us it also accelerated a lot of change so wimbledon is a sedentary event it's a, has a, a lovely pace to it it's uh, an event that's built over time um, but it made everyone stop and think about what's important how do we plan where are things that we could be operationally more efficient, financially more efficient? Um, and for many of you who are listening into this, you know, we, we for the first time did mobile ticketing. So everything in the past has been paper, um, and that was quite a big thing for our, our dynamics of our audiences, particularly we've got an aging profile in, in the membership and other parts, but that was an, a brilliant thing to allow us from a data point of view to understand our audiences a bit better. Um, we also went cashless, so again, some of these things were happening, but it was all pretty slow. And we, we enabled us to, um, I think, really stop and think about the important parts of our grounds. 
So where do people dwell? Where are experiences where we needed to uplift food and drink? Where are places that we needed to take things away to provide it with a relaxed environment? But I, I think one of the big things that we learned was we had a new audience because we couldn't uh, activate our ballot. So if anyone has won, had tickets to the ballot in 2020, finally it's their time in 2022. So we were actually putting, we didn't put tickets on until uh, 10 days before the event. Normally by the end of March, we would know our audience. So we had a, we learned, we learned quite a lot about different people buying tickets the night before, uh, different audiences who knew nothing about tennis, who'd never been to Wimbledon before. And I think for us, that really refreshed what we're about and the experience that we need to provide for our guests of just moving things on a little bit and, and listening to the audiences that were coming and being able to support that. But fantastic. I mean, I only had a call this morning from our contact at Event Research Programme, who's now, they're looking to a big um, study on stewarding. And so to Hugh's point about where are people and what they're coming from. So I think the Event Research Programme lives on um, in probably a different guise through the SGSA, uh, but it certainly enabled us to do it. And, and the final point I'd say is that um, I think we've all, we're all challenged a little bit by defaulting to the last time we did these big things. So our biggest challenge at Wimbledon is not defaulting to 2019, but being relevant to 2022. Um, so there's lots of things that we learned through the things that we stopped doing, that we're now redoing, like the queue and, and the famous things about being accessible to the, to the championships that we'll do differently, which, which has to be good. Okay, and, and talking about the sort of digital only side, I mean, um, Steve with uh, Ed Sheeran, he's been, you know, a really vocal <coughs> um, critic of um, nefarious sort of secondary ticketing operations, you know, um, to mention no names, but I think we all know who we're talking about. So, um, and Kilimanjaro and himself and uh, Stuart Galbraith have been, you know, really trying to minimise the opportunity to, to, to resell tickets at huge lifts. So, I mean, with the uh, with the pandemic and people getting so much more used to digital only and cashless and everything else, it's a bit of noise going on. There is a bit of noise. Um, I understand that you took that opportunity to kind of push the whole digital only and the kind of quite complex anti-town um, ticketing mechanisms. Um, so that must have been pretty positive in that regard. You had the opportunity to yeah move it on. Yeah, we've we've definitely done so. I mean, obviously, a lot of people say that a lot of digital and technological advancements that were coming down the line were accelerated by the pandemic. So the need for like QR codes and um, non-contactless touch points and all the rest of it. So with uh, Ed Sheeran, we've always taken the fight to the touts. Um, so in 2018, we had a very successful stadium tour where we um, refused entry to people who couldn't prove they'd actually bought their tickets off the primary market. In 2019, in Ipswich and Leeds, we did credit card only admission that was your ticket we've moved it forward for the tour coming up this year where your ticket is going to be in your mobile phone and we've tied the ticket to the mobile phone number so you had to authenticate yourself to prove it was you the same that you do when you log into your bank account or or you do a tesco credit card transaction and you get a text message with four digits in it so everyone's phone now contains their tickets uh, and it's an entirely digital only mobile solution um, and we made all of the major ticket agents develop an app or a digital solution to be able to deliver that. So the amount of work we put into it is incredible. And um, wish us luck. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, during the pandemic, obviously, you evolved the whole digital side of the London Marathon to quite a degree. And, uh, you know, you had people um, taking part virtually around the country. Um, you know, you, you evolved the kind of hybrid aspect of it. Um, are you going to carry that momentum on? Is that, was that for you a, a, is that a, a, 
huge bonus of the pandemic? Yeah, it definitely was a massive bonus in the sense that, uh, you know, it's difficult always to, to find a positive of, of what the world has been through. Um, but we previously were constrained by the roads from Greenwich to Westminster um, and by the road closures and how long we were allowed to shut London or part of London for. Um, by having the virtual London Marathon, um, those constraints are removed. Uh, people could do the London Marathon uh, in the 23 hours, 59 minutes and 59 seconds. So previously, they pretty well had to do it in under eight and a half hours. Uh, they didn't have to travel to London. Um, it became truly a global event where people were running the 26.2 miles wherever they want. They could hear Paula Radcliffe's, um, they could hear Adele, they could hear Del Robbers, that is. They could hear um, uh, Steve Cram, they could hear the crowd uh, through the headphones, through the app that we developed. Um, they could understand where they were going through London on this virtual course as they ran, wherever they were. And I think it made the London Marathon far more inclusive. Um, and that just has to be a positive thing. Um, so we are absolutely taking that further forward. It, in terms of what it did in kids, we have a mini marathon, and not many people know that we have a mini marathon. It involves two and a half thousand kids. In nine days in 2020, with a virtual mini marathon, we got 109,000 kids involved. In 2021, it was 400,000 kids involved. And our goal for 2030 is a million kids involved in the virtual mini London Marathon taking place in schools around the UK. And there's other exciting opportunities, exciting events that we will be announcing later on um, in the next month. So yeah, there's been, you know, that, the, the, the way that we've embraced sort of digital future um, got accelerated enormously over the last um, two years. Absolutely. And also, you know, one of the positives that we've talked about a lot, I think, in the industry, and it is a really a, a major achievement, I think, is the way that the industry's come together with a more, you know, united voice and lobbied harder and more effectively than ever before. And in this case of, obviously, um, you know, your, your sector, if you like, Hugh, you've got the... Uh, Mass Participation Sports Organisers um, body, which uh, can you just talk a little bit about how that came about and, and who's behind it and, and what it's achieved? Sure. I mean, this actually came about through sustainability, through saying as event organisers, how can we become more sustainable? And um, where are the best practices in the industry? Uh, we got together. Um, it was actually Nick Russling from Human Race, who was the instigator of it. They met at Marathon House, our offices. Um, when we met in December 2019, at that stage, no one knew that we were about to go into the biggest crisis the industry had ever faced. And so, you know, and, and, and you have to be honest in terms of what happened to sustainability through the pandemic. So many things that we would have been doing, you had to stop doing. Um, so it morphed into an industry voice um, talking to the government um, about outdoor running events. And outdoor running events, you know, there weren't cases of COVID being passed in outdoor running events. Around the world events were happening and there was no transmission. Yet uh, that uh, conversation 
that data was not getting through to government. So absolutely, as an industry, we got together <coughs> and, um, you know, we as a result, London Marathon Events were part of the events research program you talked about. And uh, we're now deciding where we go as a future organization. Is it back to sustainability? Or actually, one of the benefits, I think, again, is the collaborations that everyone's having, the conversations that people are having in different parts of the industry are so positive that that again is something that we need to carry on. And I was in a meeting uh, just earlier with um, you know someone in the exhibition industry who's saying, how can he help us? That's, he believes that's his duty now, and we believe that as an organization is that's our duty to help as many people that we can through the uncertainty that we all face over the next 12 to 24 months so that we can all get to a better place. Absolutely, I mean, for the live music community, the foundation or the formation of, of LIVE has been very important. It's uh, a federation of 13 um, associations, including uh, the Association of Independent Festivals, the Association of Festival Operators, uh, organisers, and um, Production Services Association, a whole, well, 13 of them. And it's uh, that, they, by speaking with one voice, one more united voice, they've, you know, they've really made progress uh, at government level and, and got listened to and... Uh, and been able to kind of talk about the value of the live music sector as a whole and also as you know the value of the festival sector as a division of that um rick you've been you know key in this whole thing and you've got a kind of more ambitious sort of goal than anyone else that seems really um with one industry one voice and what you're trying to do there which isn't just bring together the live music sector or a section of the sports community it's about bringing the whole of the uh whole of the events ecosystem together um can you just talk me through a little bit about, you know, when it was launched and, and progress you've made, but also the next kind of, your next chapter, if you like? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it, it came out from the pandemic when we had 30, 40 years of sort of institutionalised, no blame for anybody, protectionist sort of siloed areas within the events industry. Um, hundreds of event associations representing, well, an undefined sector in some respects. So... I've reached out to as many people as I knew or people that knew me and then they reached out to other people across what was, I tried to define to them, seven sectors within the industry, which are effectively corporate and experiential events, exhibitions, sports mass participation, live music, outdoor and festivals, weddings and private parties, and then sort of government third sector, just trying to start a framework of how do we define this industry for the benefit of our industry and the future generation. So I reached out to as many people I could, from, from music to sport to exhibitions, corporate and so on, and asked them, is there something in creating sort of like an informal task force where key representatives, particularly from the associations, because they represent the membership, seemed a good place to start, and a few industry leaders, just to start talking together. That's never happened before. Um, sharing key issues that we could perhaps resolve easier together than separately. Um, and also show a bit more respect and understanding for those individual sectors that may or may not feel part of it. And I think one of the underlying points I was trying to make to all of them was, was that, yes, you've got different audiences, consumer, corporate, you've got rights holders and organisers, you've even got agencies and producers. But below that is 90% of the events industry, which is the supply chain, the freelancers, uh, the kit manufacturers, um, caterers, talent, infrastructure, security, and they service all of those seven sectors, and that's the vast majority of our industry. So it would make sense to me that if you're representing the <laughs> event industry in, in the way that you're trying to attract new talent, or you're trying to showcase the power of events, that a bit more collaboration, connectivity, and a sense of community would only benefit 
everybody else. So I, I got everyone together, there was about 30 of us. Um, Nick Rosling from Human Race was one. Um, we had uh, uh, most of the main associations like sort of EIF and, and NOAA and Live, NTIA, Michael Pill, BVP from the corporate side, AO uh, from the exhibition side, the weddings lot, uh, charities were involved as well. And we just put forward every week a conversation about what we were going through and just sharing. Now, One Into Wrong Voice was the facilitator. We're not trying to replicate or be an association. We're just the conduit for people that are lobbying government on behalf of their sector to perhaps talk to another sector of the industry that's lobbying on the same issue and working together. Because people were talking to Bayes or to the DIT uh, or to the Treasury about the same issue that reflected the same sectors, but on an individual basis rather than collectively. And that's one part. And the other part was data. Everyone was struggling with the right credible data. We haven't had credible data in this industry for decades, not knowing how big we are, how much we, how many people employ, from where, from what background, where in the industry, what skill set they have, what's our export power, what's our creative power, how do we impact positively across the industry, physical and mental well-being, community and supportive and more vulnerable. There's a huge amount of power events that is unrecognized by government or media and perhaps ourselves and the public. So that's where we're at. We've created this amazing community of thousands of businesses that support us. We did a few uh, campaigns like We Create Experiences. We had all these sort of celebs doing stuff and, 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 and people commenting on like Claire Balding narrated it for us. We put that out to the media and national press and so on just to promote the power of events. Your second part of the question is where we're we going with this. Well. We recognize that if you're going to attract, and several people have said, the best talent, and we need the best talent coming back into industry, we need to actually give them a roadmap to do that. And the first port of call is, what is the events industry? What opportunities are there for me if I'm interested in tech, creative, logistics, talent, corporate events, private events, music, exhibitions, design, whatever it might be? How do I learn about this events industry that I'm being promoted perhaps to go into by university, my parents, or other people I hear are going to a management degree? So, we're going to create a comms hub, a website, not a expression, that just creates a signposting map for the events industry because you can't understand what the events industry is anywhere in the So with the industry support, and I've got literally 100% support from all the associations, all the industry leaders I've spoken to for months, been presenting to them nonstop, saying, I want to support you as associations, support you individually, but by bringing together someone where people can learn about you. So if you want to go into the live music industry, there will be a section on there for people to be pointed to live, to AAA, to other areas. If you want to learn about innovation and sustainability, there are bodies that support the events industry and so on. And all the sectors, all the trade press will be there, all the associations we represented there. So people can have signposts to start navigating around what most interests them. Benefiting perhaps the government lobbying to understand the scope of our industry, benefiting future talent who want to come in and learn about how to progress their career, and existing event professionals of how to develop their own career. Um, in infrastructural investment, institutional investors, understanding the value and the power of events export-wise or infrastructure investment-wise is very important to get scope. So that's one mission. And the second mission is data. So we've partnered with a number of universities, particularly the University of Surrey, who have the leading rated number one research events hub in Europe. And they're going to help crunch big data through an app or a microsite where we get thousands, hundreds of thousands of the event professionals to download it. And then when we just want to ask some simple questions on a project research basis, we get proper big data across the sectors, across the four nations, and back that up onto the website. But also individual associations can leverage their own research requirements for free. It'll be independently funded. We're going for some EU Horizon funding for this at the moment. So it'll all be free for the benefit of the events industry, not asking for any money from associations and taking away the subscription model or anything. 
they'll be showcased, they can leverage the data and the research with us, as well as be represented on the microhub. And, and so hopefully we have a, a picture of the events, showcasing the power of events, how it benefits businesses, communities and society, future generations, existing professionals, and it will just grow and, and, and more from that. So it's fully positive, fully collaborative, not duplicating anything, only enhancing what's already there, but in a, a more streamlined and professional way, hopefully, as we mature as an industry. Excellent. Okay. I'm just interested to get, you know, one of your reactions to that, actually. Michelle, for example, what's, what's your view on that? Because obviously we've got lots of these individual, um, now we have, lots of these sort of more powerful voices for the different sectors of the events industry. Do you feel that there's a, you know, and, and, and you know, we were saying that, you know, there's, you're not taking away anything from it, are you? It's more it's adding another layer to it, if you like. But what's your sort of view of that? Are you pleased that this, this sort of initiative's happened? Yeah, no, I mean, I think anything where we can share knowledge has got to be productive. And I, I think that there has been, certainly in Hugh, you'll have seen this in the mass participation world, you know, competition of, of entries versus what are you going to do? And different agencies and organisations organising what could be said to be the same thing. Obviously, your world is, you know, is premium in terms of where you come from and you've diversified accordingly. Um, but certainly in the sport, in the major sporting world, if you think of the likes of the Jockey Club, if you think of the likes of the FA, Wimbledon, the Open, lots of Silverstone, some of those that are quite, a, a lot of, that are privately owned um, and are run very commercially, but also for the experience of attracting major events to the UK. So we, we can't forget that we've also ambassadors for the UK in terms of bringing things from international. Um, but what we have noticed is that that group of people that normally would sort of interface on the periphery um, have now come together to say, well, what are you doing about this? Or how are you going to go about this? And that particularly came to life during the pandemic, where, to be honest, we were all making it up. So we all had a set of guidelines, but how you interpreted your, the the guidelines depending on what event you were doing. So we were a trial for the COVID pass. You know, the COVID pass was being trialed two weeks ago for the first time uh, at one of the build-up events to the Euros. You know, all this stuff was live and new. And actually, it, I'm really proud that we were part of, actually, we don't know what we're doing. And actually, we need your support. And there's lots of things that we therefore did at Wimbledon that were for the first time. So we had the COVID pass going. And the Open followed us and the Euros, uh, we were on the back of uh, twin tacking with the Euros. So, and, and it's not, it's, it's still there. So if you look this year, we, we talk about the competition in the industry, not only about where people are going to spend their money, but what are they, what are they going to go and watch? We've got the Commonwealth Games, we've got Jubilee events, we've got the Rugby League World Cup, and, and, and. Um, so there's a, there's a competition there, but actually all those events, I'm pretty confident we'll still talk to each other about what you're doing and what can we all learn for the, for the better for the industry. I mean, the ticketing thing's fascinating because there are a number of organisations out there that had cornered the market quite a lot, I would say, in, in 2021, um, which at times destabled quite a few events. And actually through the work that you've done and the innovation that people are now going, well, what more can we do? I think that's really positive. And there'll be other people that can benefit that both from their business that they're running or entrepreneurial thinking about people's skills in the industry it's opening up different ways of thinking about what do people do for events so it, it, it's got to be a good thing in terms of and good luck to you in terms of what you're doing and and I, and I think as long as uh, people are open and not just take but they also share their own experiences it's, it, it's a really good productive way forward okay Hugh I mean we've 
We have come through something um, that, I mean, the whole society's come through it. Well, the pandemic's been extremely difficult, but there has been definite positives as a result. But the challenges are far, far, far from over. And, you know, we all know what they are. You know, it's the, 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 the people moving out of the industry, the uh, inflation, cost of materials, lead times, everything else. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. But do you feel confident that as we sort of try and get out of the pandemic and get, get into a roaring 20s, hopefully, that, you know, as an industry, we're better shaped now to, to, to work our way through collectively or otherwise through these challenges? Or are you very concerned? What's your sort of general feeling looking forward? Um, I think we are better placed because there are more conversations going on uh, in the industry, across the industry, than there ever have been before. And I think that, um, I think you also have a government that realizes that things have to be changed. Um, so, you know, London Marathon is about inspiring activity. We talked about how events improve people's mental health. Um, in terms of sports events and activity, it's about improving people's physical health. Um, we have a National Health Service crisis. Um, is it a health service or is it a national illness service? It does the most amazing job if you're ill. If you actually want to get healthy and you're reasonably <coughs> healthy, but you want to get a bit more healthy, that's not where it's actually operating at. It's spending nine billion pounds a year on type two diabetic drugs. Um, when now type two diabetes can be cured with the right exercise and the right nutrition. The government realizes we've got an aging, aging population. Unless we start to help people change their behavior, unless we start to talk more collectively and inspire people in a different way, we will implode in the future. So I think those conversations are starting to be happening. I think the issue is they're probably not going to be as quick as we would all want them to be. But we have to um, get through these next 12 to 24 months. Understand it's not, we can't expect things to go back to as they were in 2019. But without a doubt, I am incredibly positive there are enormous opportunities. Um, and as long as we keep talking and listening, absolutely imperative to listen to each other, then um, we'll be in a, in a brilliant place uh, later in this decade. Great stuff. Okay. Oh, Steve, I mean, Ed, Ed Sheeran's a huge, the successful artist, as we all know. Um, he's doing a European tour, which is fantastic. I mean, obviously, with the different mitigation measures, COVID mitigation measures in different countries and different rules in different territories, it's difficult for anyone to kind of organise a tour. And I know you're, you know, UK promoter rather than all of Europe promoter. But what sort of sense are you getting with the situation that's happening in the Ukraine now, how concerned are promoters about that situation? Well, obviously, there's a huge amount of concern, but had, do you expect it to kind of impact touring on top of all the problems that are already there? Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, highly likely. I think that people who've been planning to visit Ukraine or uh, Russia itself have obviously had to cancel. Um, not, they can't even reschedule right now, so they've just canceled. If you were touring sort of Eastern Europe, then again, there's a potential knock-on effect there in terms of our arenas being used to house refugees, for example, that kind of thing. So there's, there's inevitably going to be knock-on to touring in that region. Um, I think in terms of Ed Sheeran, I believe there's a show in Poland, but apart from that, it avoids Eastern Europe on the current run. Um, back to the COVID thing, although it's hopefully in the review mirror, it's only right that we take it really seriously as a tourer because there's so much money on the table. So um, 
there will be a very strict COVID sort of protocol around the touring party. Uh, be a COVID officer on the road, I would suspect, just to make sure that the tour stays uh, healthy and can mitigate any issues that arise if individuals uh, have to test positive. So it's still gonna it's gonna go on and on a bit. Um, unfortunately, it's 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 obviously we're coming out of the pandemic, but with the situation in Europe, it's meaning that there's still a lot of concern <laughs> about the future. I, I just wanted to touch on insurance just briefly because obviously you know if. The, if the star gets COVID, there's no insurance cover against that at all, and, and the government's insurance scheme does not cover that, making it almost pointless. So, um, are, are there any conversations? In, I mean, obviously, because you do festivals as well and everything else, I'm just wondering if there's any conversations happening with the commercial market in terms of insurance for events, whether there's any sort of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of that regard. Or, or, is, is there any, any, any hope coming around the corner? I mean, we are able to insure our events for everything but COVID. Mm. So it's like, it's, it might sound like a bizarre thing to say, but I'd rather someone fell off the stage and broke their leg than test positive for COVID, which is a ridiculous thing to say, but actually we'd be able to claim for a leg break, but not for COVID. So, um, and the government scheme isn't fit for the purpose, for, for our purpose, sorry. Um, so, but we, you know, we are taking huge amounts of risk, but not just the promoter, the venues are taking risk by allowing us in. The artists are taking risk because the scale of the production is immense and there's a lot of upfront costs. So there's risk involved throughout the whole food chain. And we're all just doing our best contractually and in terms of insurance to mitigate as much as we can. Have any of you had any conversations with insurance um, operators, brokers that are saying, well, you know, next year we probably will be able to cover you against COVID? Is there any kind of positive conversations happening at all? No. Not aware of. <laughs> no, I mean, okay. um, Wimbledon was fortunate, but you could say you, you sort of plan your own time and put your energy where you think your biggest risks are. That you know, we were insured in uh, for the cancellation in 2020, which was incredible. Um, but that was a lot of foresight by a lot of people way before me. Um, I think the the biggest thing is understanding from an insurance point of view what you are covered for and what you're not now. Um, I think we're all very clear of the things that we're not covered for. But like you say, there, there's different things that interpretations of, of who counsels what. So if you, if you reply, you know, if you return back, sorry, to previous years, we were all waiting for someone to cancel our own events. Um, uh, you know, certainly through local councils, safety advisor groups, there was a lot of people who couldn't stage events because of that network. Whereas now there's, there feels like it's a lot more on the event that our actions might well cancel our own event. And the first rule of any cancellation is never cancel your own event. But it's quite interesting in the industry how people are responding to that. And will you ever get COVID insurance? I, I very much doubt it. But um, I think what we do know is the premiums are going to keep going up. So it's a double-edged sword of, of where you put your money to what you want to insure against. And it, it just puts, puts it higher up the risk register uh, in terms of thinking about what your, the territories and the people you're working with, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Bearing in mind all the challenges we've already kind of discussed, Rick, do you feel that the industry is going to come through pretty much unscathed? Obviously, everyone always talks about how durable and sort of inventive and uh, quick on their feet uh, the people of the running events are, and uh, they're more adaptable than a lot of other industries, let's say. Um, and if you're running an event in a middle of a muddy field, you have to be, you know, pretty, pretty good at thinking on your feet. But with everything else, with everything we've talked about and all the challenges, do you feel that, you know, we're going to get through this year reasonably unscathed 
uh, or do you expect to see you know some event fall by the wayside on and then we'll, we'll rebuild as we go through this decade? What's your general perspective, or, or, or do you anticipate? Well, it's a hard one. It's a balance. We're problem solvers, um, and we also deliver the most exciting experience, marketing experience, social experience as a as an industry that we're all incredibly proud of. It makes us get out of bed, you know, every day because it's it's unique in, in its ability to inspire, to celebrate, to motivate, to reward, um, and the confidence is there both from the sort of experiential corporate brand side as well as the consumer side. The problem is not now that, which is all the positive elements which are in play. Um, the problems in itself are we have you leverage brilliantly, as you say, this disruption almost to evolve what would have taken five, ten years in, in, in less than a year, in, in certain elements, the digital element particularly. Um, and that requires skill set and innovation and, and people. And unfortunately, in the last 18 months, there's been Again, we don't have the data specifically, but we would guess between 20 and 30% minimum of the industry have left. And attracting then when you've got that problem, as well as um, to what could be perceived to be a more fragile career entry, um, your more digital and technical orientated people that can support a more hybrid approach and so on, attracting them into the industry away from the path the more consistently standard digital TV media elements is incredibly hard. So if we get that bit right, we will evolve incredibly quickly and, and have a, a wider scope of ability to engage with an audience as well as just the live meet, which is what everyone is, is focusing on. You have a wider digital element to it. You, you have a more immersive experience. <coughs> so I think if we get that right and we can attract people and showcase them the power events and what a great career opportunity it is for them, um, as problem solvers, we will continue to innovate and adapt as whatever is thrown at us, because that's the essence of, of, of producing an event in itself. Um, so I am very confident. Um, unfortunately, macro, societal, geopolitical elements will just throw barriers at us. And as a resilient industry we are, we'll collectively, collaboratively, hopefully, resolve and adapt and evolve. Can I just add one thing to that? Because I think there's an opportunity at the moment with... Um, that hasn't existed, which is the opportunity in cities. So previously, cities were fed up, I believe, with many events coming to them. They were full. Um, now, with the pandemic, people are not working in cities. And that gives an opportunity where cities need to bring people to, they need to bring tourists, tourists to them, they need to bring people back to them to, the experience, to experience what it is like to be. I mean, London is the most amazing city in the world. And to see it in the pandemic, where it was empty, cycling around it, great for cycling, but terrible to see the emptiness of this vibrant, multicultural, <coughs> brilliant city. That's been lost. Cities need to get that back. And our events, our industry can provide a solution. So that's a real opportunity that did not exist, um, uh, that has not existed possibly in the last five years. I wanted to touch on, you know, the, the, we talked about mental health earlier and obviously the benefits of, of sporting events, the benefits of creative events, the benefits of getting out in a community uh, and socialising and, and the experience of things in a collective manner, you know, that, that hopefully are, are, are huge, clearly. But um, it's been talked about for years, you know, maybe I think well, there's been a lot of work that's being done to minimise this, but obviously... For a lot of people working on events, it can be quite stressful. They're very, very long hours. You know, there may be, if it's, if it's a, in the music industry, particularly maybe a culture of, of drink and late nights and that kind of thing. And, and 
and, and burnout, really, the risk of burnout, and just in that kind of, you know, in, a, in that kind of culture. That, what I'm kind of getting to, really, is, uh, Steve, are you kind of confident that the industry is moving in the right direction in terms of looking after the mental health workers, particularly at a time when you've got people that have left the industry and people are going to have to, the skilled staff that are left are having to fill holes, and there is that risk of, of, of added pressure. There will be that added pressure. So while we as an events community, whether it's the live music sector or, or across the board, doing enough to look after the staff and create working conditions that are appealing to people, but, you know, because we need to pull people back into the industry. <clears throat> I, I do believe that we are. Um, I believe we probably can get better still than where we're at. But what I notice amongst the, the younger employees is they're actually more demanding. They want a work-life balance. They want to work from home. They want a hybrid style work. Um, and maybe I'm a bit old school. Um, I, I sort of heads down work every hour that God sends. But even I woke up maybe November 2020 when the, third, the second and third lockdowns were on the horizon. I just thought, oh my God, you know, I never had mental health issues myself. But at that point in time, I was like, when am I ever going to get back to do what I do? And so that's why now we are back. I made a promise to myself to try and carry on working hard, but also enjoy my life outside of work. And if that's what I want to do, I believe it's the right of everyone involved in the game. So it's on, it's on us to try and facilitate that in a way that we look after our employees and our free, even our freelance, everyone basically, because there's so many freelancers in this game. And let's be honest, a lot of them were hung out, hung out to dry. They weren't able to be furloughed. And so it was a terrible thing happened um, in the pandemic to those people. So going forward, we just have to do better. And I do think that we are, we will, and we are trying to, and we will, we will do so. Okay, that's, that's great to hear. Um, we're sort of getting towards the end, so I thought I'd give the audience an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, we have some of the most senior people in the industry up here, so if you've got any questions now, is the time. Don't be shy, come on. <laughs> we were that good. I'm skipping lunch for this. I can carry on, but it's, it's your <laughs> opportunity. Okay. Maybe we have to fill with the red sauce, brown sauce. When you said you were moving to that digital ticket, did anyone experience any negativity towards that um, toward, with your like older, more established audience? And did you have to slip back into the old ways, or did you manage to convince people to push forwards? Is that for Michelle? Or? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> um, thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, it was really challenging, and we also didn't have time, so everything happened a lot quicker than we would have planned, um, so it took a lot of time. I mean, also, you know, we're all a people business, and, and communicating with people face-to-face -face is so much easier than trying to do a a Zoom with, uh, with, a, with huge respect to a group of over 70s trying to, you know, one of my favorite questions someone asked was, do I need a smartphone? Um, you know, we properly had to go back to basics to try and educate an audience, but fair play, everybody realized that actually we're in a time of trans transformation. We're in a time of actually the pandemic was forcing our hand in terms of evolving into mobile ticketing. And everyone, everyone joined the journey, but it was challenging. Um, and we had, it meant we we need a lot more people on the ground um, to help not just people who were trying to work out the technology, but also prepare people for the gates so that it didn't impact on our gate entry flows. Um, so there's lots of things. And the good news is we're not going backwards. 
working forwards, um, but we've got a lot more time now to take people, you know, we've not scrapped what we've done, we're building on the experiences that we had for last year um, and making sure now people are comfortable. Um, so we're, we're, we're pushing the revolution for the older generation of mobile ticketing. It is possible, but it's just about how you communicate and educate people in terms of the support. And there's always a paper ticket that's available. Um, we all know that in our world. Um, so I think that's important as well that if people uh, have accessibility needs, whether that's age, whatever else it might be in terms of things that they need support from, we always will provide that. So we're not going 100% gangbusters on uh, mobile ticketing. There's always a solution for others that might need it. Great stuff. Another question, I think. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Desmond Fitzgerald from the Showman's Guild. Uh, apologies if this has already been covered, but the one experience that I had was that um, the pandemic certainly brought a, a, a lot of people in, in many different industries, but it's certainly in the event industry and the show industry together in a way that hadn't happened before. People who may have been rivals or people who may not have been in contact with other people. Um, it was a sort of survival skill that everyone worked together in a collaborative way. Now that we are hopefully moving on from the pandemic, um, what, what chance is there that that sort of detente, if you like, or that, that collaboration can carry on or um, bear fruit for the future? I, I think we've kind of covered that actually um, during part of this session uh, in quite a bit of detail. But um, So I think if, unless anyone wants to add something to that, um, I think we, we've talked about one industry, one voice, and live, and, and the various. But I think it's a really important question. I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, in a sense, it's you know, for example, the live music industry is incredibly competitive. You know, um, do you expect the kind of, you know, do you expect that level of competition to come back again? It's, in, it's, it's integral to the industry. It will come back. It is always going to be there. But do you, do you feel, do you feel like we are, Steve? I'm going to you. But do you feel like we're, we've transcended that to a certain degree, and we will always be more united going forward, even if it falls away slightly? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the competitive side of the game is for the, for the good of the artists and for the good of the consumer, because um, consumer benefits from competition because we have to do better at what we do to attract the artists to work with us and make your experience better. So delivering a digital ticket for an Ed Sheeran fan is a, is a very complex thing. Uh, and we, we also look after every single fan. So if we, we produce a complex series of... Um, FAQs for people, so if they had any issues with it, they could find their answer. Ticketmaster developed a smart help thing, so basically, so they didn't clog up their ticket lines, people would be able to ask a, a bot on screen and get the answers back. So all of these developments are really positive. The competition side of it will carry on. The in particularly in the music industry, the competition is ruthless. I do believe, though, that on an organisational level, you know, I employ reps that also work for Live Nation. Um, the PA companies, the lighting designers, the screen people, everyone involved in the food chain, the supply chain, they're hopefully promoter agnostic. And as long as certain companies don't say, you can't work for Kilimanjaro if you work for us, then in theory, it should be fine. Um, I would like to think the good bits of everyone working together will carry on. Excellent. Okay, well, we've only got a couple... To add to that, the, the key to your point is connections have now been made that weren't there beforehand. And people have rationalized that those connections do go, as Steve said, against competitive advantage because there's bigger issues now in the industry that we all share. Whereas perhaps traditionally, pre-pandemic, we're all focusing on ourselves 
looking internal and forgetting that there's a bigger, wider ecosystem out there that we're all part of. And for me uh, and many industry leaders here, we all have responsibility to leave this industry in a better place than when we came into it. That, that's got to be our ultimate legacy, right? So if we have responsibility to show and lead that connectivity, collaboration can, can benefit all event professionals, because we've said before how much of this is a shared ecosystem, Steve's point, and the vast majority of people in this room work cross-sector, not just in music or in, in, in corporate or whatever it might be at Confex, then sharing connectivity and, and evolving the industry collectively will attract better talents, better career opportunities, up, up, uplift the power of events for all our benefit. Okay, thank you for the question. Um, just one last question for everybody. We've, um, the panel uh, title was, uh, or is, Will the 20s be roaring? So that's the question for all of you, um, Michelle. I think it will be. Um, it's, a, it's a quiet yelp at the moment, but I'm hoping that the roar is, uh, will, the noise will get louder as, as we go through the 20s. And I think we've all got a collective responsibility to make that happen for jobs, for people, for welfare, for security of income, for, and again, keep coming back to shared experiences. People want to go out there and enjoy themselves. And we haven't done that for a couple of years. And, and I think it will definitely, um, it will come back, but it will come back differently. But difference actually okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, yeah, I, I think that we did expect um, post-pandemic things to kick off really quickly. In some parts of the world, it, it has happened. So, for example, in Dublin, the government made a decision to open up, and that following weekend, it was absolutely crazy in Dublin, so I hear. So there is like an instant impact of you're free, you can go out and do what you like. I think on a, on a, on a longer-term um, analysis, this year and next year, I think we're going to have a post-pandemic hangover, but I'd like to think that the... We should rename this panel the Roaring Mid-20s. You? I uh, totally agree with that. Roaring Mid-20s. I think it's going to be uh, quite a challenge the next couple of years, 22 and 23. Um, but whether it is or not, it's in our hands. Um, so what we have to do is provide these amazing experiences for people, remind them now, I think, about how good those experiences are, get that word around. And the more that we do that, what we provide is so unique that uh, it will drag people back to it because the, mo the ultimate immersive experience is a live experience. Yeah, 100%. We are an amazing industry that can evolve and adapt. We shouldn't be scared of the difference that we're now in, and we have to recognize and embrace that rather than trying to go back to what we were doing. And a particular reference to that is the digital element to it. Don't be scared of the metaverse. It's coming. It's part of it. It's positive. It's immersive. It can only... Um, prevent the stifling creativity and it takes, breaks down barriers. Don't be afraid of, of VR and AR and other immersive things that create a wider experience for a live event, uh, widening audiences, um, create a more in, immersive and a tease campaign before, a legacy afterwards. They're all positive things that have accelerated through the more digitization of our industry through the pandemic and it'll only leverage what is essentially what we do is live experiences. So I'm really excited. Great stuff. Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming and for, for our panel. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.